about your psalms, talk about John 3.16. Austin 3.16 says I just whipped your ass. You can call this the new world order of wrestling, brother. Hi everyone, this is Neil Pruitt from Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro. You may have heard this voice before, the New World Order. I was the producer and the voice for the New World Order. You're listening to the Wrestling Basement Podcast. This podcast has not been sanctioned by the New World Order. Hey everyone, this is Guy Evans, author of Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW, and you are listening to the Wrestling Basement Podcast. New Wrestling Basement Podcast, um, joined by Guy Evans, the author of Nitro, The Incredible Rise and in- uh, Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW, uh, which you can find the book on WCWNitroBook.com. And I'm also joined by Neil Pruitt, the voice of the NWO, uh, the host of the Secrets of Nitro podcast. Gentlemen, how you guys doing? Doing great, Randy. Thanks for the invite. It's uh, it's great to be here. No problem, gentlemen. Um, big fan of uh, of what you guys do, the podcast. Um, I just uh, guy, I just ordered the book today. I know I was going back and forth with you earlier about. Um, you know, me getting the book and do a proper podcast with you. So hopefully uh, the next couple of months, once I finish reading it, I can have you on again. But I just got the book today. <laughs> Randy, are you, are you aware that there's an audio version as well? Yeah. You can I, go I, that route. Or get both. Right, right guy? I like that. I like the way you think that, Neil. <laughs> Ever the businessman. Yeah, hey. working with you, you know. <laughs> hey, listen, man. I guess I took the more old school route and got the paperback. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Either one is fine, but absolutely, Randy. You know, once you have a chance to go through the book, if you want to, you know, have me back on to talk about it, I'd be more than happy to do that. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Uh, first, yeah, that's, that's actually how we got together, Randy, on this whole thing. Really? Do Neil Neil Pruitt's secrets of WCW Nitro? Nice. And I know this guy's book and uh, interviewing me about I, that got it going with our friendship and everything nice uh first and foremost i hope you guys are staying safe and healthy during these times uh wishing you and your your families well um so the first question i ask people when they come on the show real quick uh, i start with you guy is basically what made you become a fan of pro wrestling what 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 got you into the sport was it a match was it a superstar was it some kind of experience you had what got you into becoming a fan of pro wrestling 
Well, I think a big reason, Randy, was uh, the great work that people like Neil were doing, quite frankly, back in the day in the uh, the Monday Night Wars era. You know, that was the time in wrestling that made me a fan, you know, growing up in the in the UK on the other side of the pond. Mm-hmm. You know, wrestling at that time was a huge thing for us as well. Um, you know, the WWF really had more of a presence in the UK. But um, in terms of WCW, you know, we got Nitro and Thunder and were able to watch the, the various syndicated. Uh, shows and, and bits and pieces of that as well mm. um, and you know that that time when both companies were really on fire and you had just so many amazing characters and storylines and and of course you know so many great um, so many great uh, things going on on a production side um, you know that was an amazing time in wrestling and that's really what what made me a fan and uh, and that's what's so great about having the chance to talk to Neil today on the secrets of Nitro podcast and really get into a lot of the behind the scenes of how these various moments and, and videos and, and promos came about. So uh, that's what got me into it to begin with. All right, Neil, what got you into it? I was lucky enough when I came to Atlanta to direct a sports show for a gentleman named Jody Hamilton, mm-hmm. who was one of the best wrestling minds in the business, known in his wrestling name as the Flame and the Assassin. Back in the 60s, he just was incredible wrestler and Actually, at age 19, he and his brother were tag team partners. They sold out Madison Square Garden, so that's one of his claims to fame. But I enjoyed working with him. He said I naturally had the gift to cut the cameras at the right time, and I told him I just didn't like a fight scene. So that was my initial time to get started in the wrestling business. So, Neil, I stay with you. Um, The last time I had you on, maybe about three years ago, uh, I think you were just starting off the podcast, The Secrets of Nitro. I just want to see, you know, we're in 2020 now. You know, you were debuting that podcast three years ago. I want to ask you, how's it going? How's it been? How many uh, people that you wanted to get in touch with for the podcast have you got a chance to talk with? And um, how's it growing? Luckily, we've been very successful with the podcast. Our friendship started, Guy and I, with the interview that I did for the book, as I mentioned, Mm -hmm. and he said, look, if you got any stories to tell, go ahead and record them on your, on your iPhone and just send me the wave file. So I did. And luckily guy commented on the fact that I was a pretty good storyteller and that we needed to get these on, you know, some kind of format where people couldn't hear these. And he suggested a podcast, and I was like, I don't know if anybody really wants to hear all this stuff, but mm. he said he said they did, and uh, it seems to be the truth. And we take it at a different angle than most other any other podcast. We actually talk about the production behind the wrestling business, which nobody else does. Mm. So that makes it unique and makes it unusual, and I think that's what makes it successful. So, Guy, I go to you. Um, what was the, the background, the genesis of you writing – uh, the Nitro book, um, because I'm pretty sure you had to have have, have a whole bunch of interviews and people to track down. and um, So lay out the, the genesis of it, the background. Was it your ideas? Did, did someone come to you? Why did you feel felt that this book needed to be written? Well, as I mentioned, Randy, you know, I was a fan in the in the heyday of WCW, and, and I followed both companies really closely at that time. As I said, it was a, a huge mainstream thing at that particular moment in time. And I think when WCW went away, like a lot of other people, 
I, I sort of had an instinctual feeling that it probably wasn't going to be the, the same feeling, at least for quite a while in the wrestling business without that competition. And so that was really the extent of my, my interest in wrestling around 2001, 2002. I kind of dropped off um, my, my interest from it for a while. And it wasn't until about 2009, 2010 that um, I, I remember hearing from a friend that you know, this company TNA Wrestling were apparently going to mm-hmm. um, challenge the, the the WWE, and it seemed almost like kind of a resurgence, maybe or hopefully, you know, of the Monday Night Wars era. And I remember hearing that you know Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair and all these guys are apparently giving you know one more run at it. Right. And um, it was at that time <clears throat> that that sort of really rekindled, you know, my interest and I suppose nostalgia in the in the WCW days. Um, and I started looking into some of the other accounts of the story and the various books and documentaries on the subject and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, found them all to be, you know, really interesting. Um, but I felt like there were a lot of questions that maybe hadn't been fully answered. And so after a couple of years of kind of hoping that someone would approach the story in a different way, um, I kind of said, well, you know, this, this will be a fun project for me to try. So around 2014, that's when I actually began work on the book and 120 interviews later, mm. you know, and 600 pages later, now we have the Nitro book. Nice. So, so stay with you real quick. Um, what was more interesting to you, whether in real time or in the, in this process, was it more interesting to you know to to learn or see the rise of WCW and Nitro, or was it more about the fall of WCW and Nitro and just how just how quickly it just kind of went away? Yeah, I think you know both parts of that equation are equally as fascinating to be honest because mm-hmm. when you look at when the company was on the rise and and when things were really rolling and you know the the ratings were at an all-time high the pay-per-view buy rates were through the roof learning about some of the amazing creative ideas um that went into the programming at that time and that's where you know neil and, and people like neil were so helpful with this project is being able to remember so many things in such granular detail. I mean, as you'll, you'll see when you pick up the book and and read it, Randy, that, Mm. you know, there are some stories in there about some of the more famous on-screen nitro moments um, that probably go into a level of detail that I don't think fans have necessarily heard before. So that really gives you an appreciation of just how much creativity and hard work and ingenuity goes into some of these really memorable, amazing moments. Um, at the same time, as, as you mentioned, you know, becoming more aware of the conditions that WCW had to exist under within the Turner Broadcasting corporate structure. You know, many of those conditions, I think, accelerated the, the downfall of the company and perhaps uh, made it as it says in the subtitle of the book, you know, quite inevitable that the company eventually went away, Mm -hmm. really getting a a handle on what that dynamic was like and what the relationship was like vis-a-vis WCW and TBS um, was very illuminating. I think that's probably uh, the, the, the principal way that this book differs from, um, other books or other documentaries or other accounts of the story is, um, you know, you, you get to hear from a lot of these shadowy figures really like, you know, Jamie Kellner and Harvey Schiller and all of these people that you've heard over the years had some kind of influence and and control over WCW. Mm -hmm. And you actually get to hear from, uh, those people in their own words about what happened. So, I would have to say that both sides of that equation are equally as, as interesting. 
So I would assume you were more of a Nitro guy than a Monday Night Raw guy. <laughs> well, you know, as I, as I said, I, you know, I followed both companies, you know, really closely. I mean, you know, it was you know, something at that time. I remember my peer group and, and myself, we would watch both shows. We watched the pay-per-views. We would follow all of it. And, nice. um, you know, I, I think the, the, the overall presentation of wrestling at that time, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you look at uh, – the role that the announcers played in in making you know some of these bouts seem like you know the, the fate of the world was at stake, and you look at the reaction of the crowds during some of those Nitro and Raw shows. It was just uh, a lot of excitement and a lot of unpredictability, and, and you never knew exactly what to expect. So mm. it's obviously a, fast, a fascinating story when you you look at it on the surface. The fact that WCW was at such highs, and then as you mentioned, in a relatively short period of time. Um, you know, the company ceased to exist. So, mm. you know, rather than write a book about, you know, hey, here's, here's my opinion as a, an outsider, someone who never worked in it, here's what I think, you know, went well and didn't go so well. What you really hear from in this book are the the key decision makers and, and principal actors on both the WCW and the Turner side. Um, and that is kind of augmented by reference to a lot of materials in the book, whether they be financial statements or memos or, or internal emails and messages uh, that the wrestling fans have never uh, become aware of before. So I would like to think that, you know, those two things together kind of provided a pretty, uh, a pretty holistic picture of exactly what went on. And, and as I said before, you know, uh, Neil was one of the, the, the very uh, most important people in, in putting the whole picture together. Right. So Neil, uh, you're the uh, NWO guy, the voice guy, Vignettes start happening in 1996. Uh, I got to know, what were you doing in 1996 at this time, working with the company? How long were you there for before you started working with the NWO stuff? And who primarily came to you with this idea of doing the voiceovers and the vignettes and and that that whole process? New World Order. (laughs) (laughs) I've been asked that before. Let me go back for just a second to Guy's book and tell you how important it is to the people in the wrestling business and the wrestlers themselves. He did such a great job, as a matter of fact, that Eric Bischoff, who very rarely would even think about tracking anyone down to talk to them about anything, he came across the hotel lobby while we were at StarCast in Chicago just to find out from me who this Guy Evans guy is and where is he. And, uh, Mm. of course, I led him quickly to him, and he just wanted to shake Guy's hand for doing such a thorough job and a great job interviewing people that he didn't even have a chance sometimes to talk with that were way above him. Nice. So that's that's how in-depth this book is. So I definitely put a statement on that, and it is the go-to book for wrestling people Mm -hmm. in the business and for wrestlers themselves. But the way I got involved with the NWO was I had already been working – at the company for, I guess, about six years. I had started in the interview room and doing audio for that and then kind of coaching the wrestlers on what to say and even even lucky enough to critique some of the announcers that really, in my mind, didn't need critiquing. But I was a, a director for a nightly sports show before that, so I had already been around professional athletes quite a bit and sports in general. And I had done packages, meaning little history packages or talking about somebody's personality or how they got involved in football or basketball Mm -hmm. or whatever. And that kind of gave me a leg up on 
a time when they needed someone to start doing some more of these videos. So I actually started with a 1 in 100 number commercial. And the phone grew and grew on the video, so much so that it had such great information and it exploded and all these pictures come flying out of it. So they really liked my creativity on that. And from that day on, basically I was a package producer from then on, doing things like um, Teddy Long driving Ric Flair into the hood so um, they could get beat up by doom. Mm -hmm. Um, Various videos like that, like TDP's reign with the uh, title, Macho Man in Harvard being the real man of the year. All those videos would then come into my career but the way the NWO worked was they came to me and said, hey, we want you to do a series of videos about these guys. And they're kind of renegades. They're coming in from the outside, the outsiders. And we want you to just make it look cool. And that was what Eric said, just make it look cool. So I thought of the idea of the black and white thing, which would work well because I had seen these Paul Mitchell commercials. They were a hair product back in the day that had really interesting looking um, style about them. So mm-hmm. I took a little bit of that, and then I also did a few things at the beginning that really didn't quite work, which were taking the NWO logo and uh, taking a light and shooting it through the logo and kind of putting that on their body. Some of the very first ones have that in there. And that worked okay, but it was kind of a pain, and it I don't know. I don't think it really needed it with those trying personalities in front of the camera. But one thing that I always thought would be good, and I think other people did as well, is what does it look like if you're actually in the interview? We have a bunch of equipment around, a bunch of fancy stuff and expensive stuff, and the sets are pretty elaborate sometimes. What does it look like if you're actually going to be trying to communicate your message to the viewers at home? So that's when I gave Scott Hall my camera, this little Panasonic VHS camera, and I said, hey, do you mind just videotape each other, you know, goofing around and whatever. So that part of the style... I think people were attracted to the quick cuts and the message on how we put it across and also maybe the inside view of what it was like to actually be a wrestler. So real quick, you mentioned Scott Hall. Uh, We're taping this on May 28th. I know you'll love this, Neil. Uh, May 27th was when Scott Hall debuted back uh, on Nitro when he did the whole, you know, you won a war kind of promo coming down from the the stands and you know interrupting the match and he's in the middle of the <laughs> ring and I'm like wow like everything's falling into place like I'm trying to get Guy and Neil on the show it's the anniversary for Scott Hall debuting in, in, in uh, on Nitro uh, I know Nitro makes 25 years in September so I know Guy would love that so um, just you know having you guys on here I love the stories and everything but um, it's like Neil, you're you're in the middle of that Monday Night War era, uh, with with both companies going at it. They're trying different creative things. Um, everybody in the country and the world is watching wrestling. Even me, you're getting five, six, seven million people watching every Monday night. Uh, but I know it had to be somewhat kind of cool, entertaining, but kind kind of like a little on edge in the backstage in the locker rooms where it's like no matter what you do, you're on on a on a high. Um, mantle where you know now you're being looked at differently so um how was everything back then during this time because i i guarantee it 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 had to be intense week in and week out working there we were riding the tip of the latin boat baby (laughs) (laughs) we were at tcb level if you will 
<laughs> That's what Dusty said, that we were riding the tip of the lightning bolt, and I do believe that. It was that kind of fun, though. I mean, there's no better high than an uh, international television program that you work on that's live. And at any time, something can go majorly wrong. But when you're riding it and it's going right, it really works. It's so much fun. Yeah, It's better than any drug or alcohol anybody could ever try. So, it's fun as as fun gets. Mm-hmm. So, guy, man, for this for this book, I, I seen the excerpts of who you interview from people like Eric Bischoff to Vince Russo, Kevin Nash, you know, Harvey Schiller, Buff Bagwell, Kevin Sullivan, uh, even Neil Prude himself, and, and more. Um, who who's the people that that you interviewed that you really learned a lot from? Some stuff that you probably did not know, and who are some people who you wanted to interview but just couldn't? Because whether they were, you know, scheduling conflict or they just kind of denied wanted to be a part of it. Well, I suppose I'll answer the second question first. I mean, the obvious omission in this book, uh, if there is one, is Ted Turner himself. I mean, that wow. was the kind of a dream goal of, you know, that would be the the cherry on the Sunday to have the opportunity to speak with with Ted Turner. Um, obviously, at the time this book was being written, and I think subsequent to the book's release, a lot of this has become public. You know, uh, Ted Turner has been going through, you know, a lot of um, health health difficulties, and that was something that I was. Made aware of during the writing of the book, um, but I was able to speak with many people who worked side by side with him and communicated with him on a daily basis. And uh, we do have a, a, a section towards the end of the book where there's a statement from uh, the Ted Turner Foundation, um, if memory serves me correctly, which kind of touches on some of his memories with WCW. So it was it was nice to at least be able to include that. Um, as far as uh, you know some of the more illuminating interviews. I mean, you know, during the, the process of doing, doing the book, um, Neil and I talked a tremendous amount. It wasn't as if, you know, I kind of talked to him for half an hour one day on the phone and that was the end of it. So, so that was, you know, it seemed like every, every time we, we picked up the phone, there was something, a new angle that I learned or a new story that I hadn't heard before, or mm. maybe a, a different way of looking at things that I hadn't considered. Um, obviously, Eric Bischoff, you know, I had the chance to speak to him for probably about four hours or so in total and really covered a lot of ground and touched on a lot of different areas I don't think he'd been asked about before as it relates to WCW. But I'll give you one very quickly, um, Randy, that people probably haven't heard of before. There's a guy by the name of Bill Burke who was the um, former head of the TBS network, and he actually got to that position at a very early age. Um, if I remember correctly, I think he was still in his 20s when he was basically given uh, the position of overseeing that entire network. Mm-hmm. And I actually went, went up to, um, I went to his his office and, uh, and, and spent a few hours talking to him in person because I was lucky to do quite a few interviews with people face-to-face. And the amount of information that I learned um, talking to him that day, not just about you know how Turner Broadcasting operated, but more so what the television and media environment was like back in the 90s and how that compares to today. It's just really invaluable information. And, and there were some things in that conversation that you know you kind of carry with you to this day. And, and that's the great part about doing something like this is you learn things from people that you can maybe apply in your own life, you know, personally or professionally and apply to future projects as well. So not a name that's really on the tip of everyone's tongue, but Bill Burke, uh, you know, that just really immediately comes to mind as just a very, very helpful and, and, and useful interview. So you mentioned Ted Turner. Um, 
with the with the glaring omission. Now, if you had to do it all over again and somehow, some way, hypothetically, Ted Turner was to give you that platform to ask him whatever you wanted, and if you had like 10, 20 questions that, that you had that you wanted to ask, but there's one one question that above all had to be asked to Ted Turner regarding the book, what would that question be? Oh man, I don't know if I could necessarily narrow it down to one. I think just if if you had the chance to talk to him, you know, it, it would be a matter of just letting him go more than anything. I mean, Neil will tell you better than I can. You know, Ted Turner certainly was never a loss for words, and I don't think I don't think you'd need to give him, uh, you know, a, a lot of prompting to to get going. So, I think you could pretty much ask him about any subject, whether it be Vince McMahon or. What were his feelings? You know, what are his feelings today about the, the AOL Time Warner merger, or really anything under the sun? I think he would always find a way of, of making it entertaining and making it um, informative. So, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully he's uh, he's doing better than uh, than than uh, you know some of the information that came out recently. And you know, we send our best certainly to to him. Absolutely. Uh, so Neil, back to you. So I'm not I'm not sure if you got a chance to see it, but. Uh, ESPN was airing the the Last Dance documentary on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Uh, real quick, there was one particular part, and I think in the final <laughs> the final episode, episode ten, um, they did was shockingly they showed when Dennis Rodman went to Nitro and Bash at the Beach and all that during ninety seven ninety eight, and mm-hmm. I'm watching it at home. And I'm kind of like, oh shit! They really showed this, but and like they really went in, <laughs> in depth with it with um, him leaving, him going to, to him going to Nitro during the finals, and all the crazy stuff he was doing. Um, I, I think you told me you might have worked hands on with Dennis Rodman. If not, um, what was it like to to meet him, be around him during this time? Because it was a very funny time for a, a major star like Rodman to leave his profession to go to your profession. He just said the word funny, so I'll tell my story. (laughs) Go ahead, man. Go ahead. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Um, Definitely Rodman was a trip for sure and never knew really what he was going to do next. But he fit really well with wrestling, I thought. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's a character for sure. And to track his progress, if you kind of paid attention to his career, and I was old enough to kind of follow it in that way, not just be enamored by his talents and rebounding. But... I do remember when he first met, um, let's see, who did, he met Madonna. And I think they dated or something went on. Anyway, after that, that's when he started doing the polka dots in his hair and mm-hmm. wearing the wedding dress and all kind of bizarre stuff. So yeah. Madonna's the one that taught him how to stay on the mind of viewers out there. And that's when he got outrageous. He wasn't like that at all beforehand. I mean, yeah, he was a little bit crazy, but not to the extent that you see him at now. But let me tell you about the first time I met him. So I was tasked to have a wonderful project, which was to do videos with Hogan and Rodman and DDP and the mailman Carl Malone, who is a, another awesome basketball player if you don't follow basketball. So the video was to go out to Planet Hollywood in Hollywood and do a series of videos to promote their match. And I believe the it was Bash to the Beach, I guess. I'm yeah. not really sure, and I don't remember that, mm-hmm. but um, I had never met Rodman before. So I went over to Hogan and told him, I said, look, I got to do these videos. You know, I want to explain to Rodman what's going on, to Mailman, how we kind of operate, 
what we do and what we need from them. And he said, yeah, no problem. <clears throat> I said, first, Hawk, I got to tell you a little story. I said, you see those pajamas he's wearing? He said, yeah. I said, my mom just brought my brothers and me a pair of those pajamas at Target for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I got those same jammies at home. Wow. <laughs> he thought that was hilarious. So. But I went over and shook Dennis's hand. And uh, to be honest with you, it was, I, I can't say it was pleasurable. Um, but the guy has something for sure. But uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly what the appeal is, but it's there. But he did... He was very cooperative and did what we needed him to do. And Carl Malone was really getting into it. And DDP, you know, he's very excitable mm -hmm. and exciting, I should say. And he can get people fired up, and he's a master at it and still doing well with his DDP yoga. But that was cool to see them kind of get together and see their game plan on how they're going to go about doing the interviews and and just bring the energy up to a level that I think the fans really appreciated. It was a it was a pleasure to work with all those guys that were very professional. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it did something that uh, being from a small steel mill town in Northeast Ohio, I never really thought I could ever do. Um, but I, I thought there was potential there, but you just kind of got to follow what you love to do and do the best you can every day. And hopefully it works out for you. And God bless me to no end. And I think, you know, just having Robin and Robin involved somehow, some way during this time where, you know, society is different. Uh, younger kids are watching different kinds of shows and getting involved in different things. And, you know, the bad guy is now, you know, the cool thing now. So, you know, I know McMahon brought in Tyson the year after, but seeing Rodman and his cachet, his superstardom to go into WCW, whether it be a match, a promo, just to walk out with the NWO, it was just a... Just a uh, a, a phenomenal thing to watch and I'm a kid I'm 13, 14 years old and, you know, in, in high school watching this and it was just you know surreal to, you know to the fact that the NWO was more looked at as a real cool thing a real like hipster kind of thing and new, it wasn't new, it wasn't just wrestling new world order new world order exactly it just wasn't a wrestling <laughs> angle it felt more real it felt more cool to be to be involved with that yeah, I'm not sure that I'm so proud of the fact that they were kind of thugs and kind of <laughs> took over, and people like them for that. But uh -huh. it was a job, and I did it the best I could. <laughs> it somehow got popular. <laughs> mm. So now, just to kind of rewind with you, Neil, real quick. Uh, the NWO does form a year prior, 96, Bash at the Beach. Uh, Hogan cuts the promo. Everybody in the, in the crowd is throwing garbage at him and and wow. stuff like that. And you kind of just feel like, all right, this is something that's going to be really impactful going forward. Uh, what a night. But, but there's no music. There's no NWO name until Hogan says New World Order in the ring. Uh, but when it's time to have music and vignettes and promos in the group name, you know, how does that everything um, come to be? How does that start for the promotion of arguably the greatest faction of all time. I believe the name, and thank you for the compliments, Randy. I really appreciate it. It was a whole lot of fun, but I could have never done it without having an excellent crew. These people did whatever we needed them to do. Mm -hmm. They were the top professionals at the top of their game. And to be able to work with people like that <clears throat> and be able to know that they have your back no matter what you try or them maybe even enhancing what you're trying and throwing out ideas. I mean, that was a great collaboration. A gentleman named 
Kemper Rogers, who is a terrific director, producer, and superior editor in his own right, really had a lot to do with the look of the NWO. And we primarily worked together on the film clicks and all that, and the film scratches and the quick cutting. And I owe a lot of debt of gratitude to Kemper Rogers. He just did a terrific um, job for us. And he was a senior editor, and I worked with him a lot on a lot of other shows like uh, WCW Saturday Night Packages back before Nitro. And that was a terrific thing. But, um, yeah, it was a, it was an adventure, man, and uh, there's nothing like it. <laughs> the way the NWO got started, as far as I know, was Kevin Sullivan, I believe, was the one that came up with the name. And as uh, hopefully some Bible readers out there, I know I, I clutch mine for sure, especially in some of the times I've had. But uh, the New World Order is actually in the Bible. And I don't know if that's where Kevin found it, but mm. that's how the name got started. And obviously it kind of came to uh, fruition when we got three people going. Um, after we were, fig or I guess the fourth man, whatever the piece was where we found Hogan was going to join, which was a big surprise. But then um, we were trying to figure out who the other person would be. And I know Sting was talked to at one point. So there was a variety of people actually that, were slated to possibly come into the NWO. So it was even kind of an adventure for us to find out who was next. Guy, I, I, I'll, I'll wrap it up with you with two more. Um, just as a fan, you know, watching the product live and live in color um, and, 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 and reminiscing about it now, like what kind of bothers you about Nitro? What kind of bothers you about the fall of WCW? Uh, is it a major what if? Is it more about... Uh, the AOL Time Warner merger that we keep hearing about um, or something that you just never really understood why it was happening in real time about how the company was just so on fire making a whole bunch of money and really having McMahon to, to, to change what he was doing to bring in the Attitude Era and, and build new stars um, anything that really like personally bothers you about Nitro or the fall of WCW <sighs> That's an interesting question. I think for me as, a, as someone who was a fan back then, well, probably if I had to pick something that bothers me, it's that that particular style of wrestling, in my mind, I, you may disagree, Randy, people listening to this may disagree, but that particular style no longer exists. So obviously yeah. WCW, you know, by the time of the Nitro era, you know, really had an infusion of talent from all over the world. And you had, you know, of course, people who'd come through the territories. You had people who had come from the old NWA. You had people who'd come from, from Vince McMahon. But really, it did have its roots in, you know, Southern wrestling. And, you know, you, you combine that with the real sports kind of presentation, as I talked about earlier, that I think the announcers um, and the production staff, the performers, and even the crowd themselves cultivated. And the way that they would react to, for example, you know, Goldberg being Hogan at the Georgia Dome, where you've got 41,000 people reacting like, uh, you know, someone just hit a shot at the buzzer or reacting like it's, it's the World Series or something mm. um, or the Super Bowl. You know, that's that's kind of what I miss. And maybe if you, if I had to pinpoint something, something that bothers me, because I don't see as much of that in contemporary wrestling. You know, I think it's uh, a different kind of presentation 
imagine it's a different kind of business, perhaps even a different uh, demographic that, that, that follows it so closely now. Um, and so there's a little bit of wistfulness there, I think, you know, for anyone who was a fan back then, you kind of wished it could have continued for longer uh, and maybe continued to evolve in some form or fashion. But uh, at least we have, uh, you know, the old shows to go back and, and, and watch and we have, you know, people like Neil who uh, who are with us to really reminisce and, and, and talk about those those glory days. So uh, at least we have that. And we have 42 podcasts to talk about it on Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro. Well, there you go. Guys, <laughs> yeah, steers me through it. Thank goodness for all that. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll give you a guy one more, and I give one more uh, one more to, to Neil before you guys uh, get up out of here. Um, so, guy, were you ever? I, I, the one thing I keep hearing about, you know, what the main reason was, or one of the main reason aside from AOL Time Warner merger was, the show they they added was called Thunder. So I know when people fans hear it hear Thunder now, they cringe. They're like, oh, Thunder. Um, but were you a fan of Thunder? Uh, I, I I thought it was okay watching it growing up. Uh, I thought it was decent, okay. I know they they had three hours of Nitro and they wanted to put up to you know try to get new uh, more stars on Thunder who were not going to be performing on Nitro. But um, I liked it in the beginning. But stories I've heard shows more of a of a dislike towards Thunder and, and and the whole entire merger. Does does Thunder get a bad rap or is the dislike? Justify ever since ever since it debuted back in January of of '98. Yeah, I, I think from my perspective, it's certainly somewhat ju- justified. I think uh, there is such a thing as overexposure, and that was something that a, a lot of people and Neil could speak to this as well within WCW were concerned with at that particular time. Is you know, are we going to get to a situation where we have too much wrestling on the air? Mm-hmm. Because don't forget, you know, shortly after the introduction of Thunder, all of a sudden now Nitro goes to three hours. Yeah. So you've got three hours of Nitro, you've got two hours of Thunder, you've got the syndicated shows, you've got the pay-per-views. And a lot of times in life and in entertainment as well, I think less is more. And there has to be an anticipation factor. You know, you, you have to have, and I think especially back then when people were more watching these shows in the moment as opposed to you know of course there were vcrs and things like that but it's you know we're kind of in an on-demand environment today but especially back then when you know people were watching these shows as they were happening i think part of the magic was the uh the the kind of mystery over well where are they going to take it from here you know what's going to be the next chapter in the story what's going to happen next next monday well now if next monday turns into thursday or turns into wednesday mm-hmm. um all of a sudden you've, you've lost a little bit of that and maybe over time you find yourself skipping a show here or there and before you know it now that becomes a habit and you start seeing you know one of the programs is kind of a skippable or, or a b show so i think you could definitely make a compelling argument that it probably accelerated some of the the problems that came later on uh within the company as a standalone show now out of context you can go back and go on the network and and watch those shows and probably be very entertained by them but if you put yourself back in that kind of temporal context in other words when these things were actually happening um again i think that that probably chipped away um at people's ability to really anticipate and look forward to the next live monday show but that's again that's just my uh my perspective so I got one more for Neil, uh, but guy, I know once I get the book, I know I'll get you back on. As I mentioned earlier, it'll be 25 years since Nitro debuted. That uh, mm. kind of set the wrestling world on fire. So I definitely want to continue this conversation uh, fully and thorough. But Neil, last one I got for you is um, 
you know, can you tell me, is there a pinpoint moment for you where it was the peak of, of your wrestling fandom back in the day, working with the NWO, working with WCW, like what was the peak of the NWO? And do you, do you have a favorite moment working with them or favorite vignette that you worked on? All great questions. Thank you. <laughs> I think it was really fun to work with people like Ric Flair mm-hmm. and staying in, as I mentioned on our podcast about the Macho Man and Diamond Dallas Page. And there's just so many names that I just got lucky to be involved personally with almost all the greats that we had with us in their videos. I mean, you can't ask for anything more than that. Working with Dusty Rhodes and a lot of, with, uh, people like Gordon Soley and Tony Schiavone and JR. I mean, the names just, the list I take back and look at is just like phenomenal. And I really didn't even start out being a wrestling fan really that much. I just really liked the character development of it all. Mm-hmm. And to be able to do that and help these people better themselves as far as how they present themselves on camera and doing the variety of vignettes that I got to be involved with from fight scenes to history packages to character developmental packages. I mean, as far as a creative person goes and creative person with video, you can't ask for a better platform to work on than professional wrestling that goes around the world that uh, how many millions of people watch it every week. It was, it was quite a, quite a fun time and uh, I'll never forget it. And it's something that uh, has been the pinnacle of my career. I mean, I, I suppose if you're going to ask about what videos were the best, I think the NWO was something that really culminated to bringing all of the forces together, you might say. And one I really remember that was an interesting big shoot was Eric Bischoff in the open for NWO sold out. Mm. We were in Chicago and we had everybody together. We had done it the week before. And I'll quickly spin this story into uh, an unusual thing that happens when you write things for people. Okay. We were writing Eric Bischoff's speech, both Kemper Rogers and myself, who I mentioned earlier. And we just couldn't think of the last line before you hit him to go to the crowd in the open that we had produced because the open was quite complicated and confusing to do video-wise. And I don't think it really played very well at home, unfortunately, on sold out. I don't think it was really shot right uh, one of the few things that i think we may have not done well and it wasn't planned really well but i just remember doing the video just all of the big names right there and there's like a almost a family reunion you might say when we actually did the video but we were trying to think of what is the last line before we take it from black and white mm-hmm. the nwo to color <laughs> in living color that was the last thing that I said before we actually started the open. So we were actually trying to finish it up the night before in Chicago, before we shot it. And we were in the bar talking to other people and kind of asking their suggestions. And some person who may have had a few too many, who was a terrific prop person and person in the background for us, William. We go, William, what do you think, man? He goes, I think I might have it. I said, what is it? He goes, what the hell were you thinking? So the whole speech at the end of when Eric talks, Mm -hmm. he goes, those of you who have offered yourselves up as opponents, 
what the hell were you thinking? He looks right in the camera, and that was a yep. signature line that went before the open. And that was, <laughs> it was a cool thing just to know that we were so open to suggestions mm-hmm. because we know people were on the same positive wavelength. All the crew was there because you know what? If you weren't, you'd be gone. There's a lot of people that wanted to do what we did. And we always knew there were 10 people standing in line to take our job. That's why we took it so seriously. That's why we dedicated our time to it and our uh, professionalism. And doing that was enough pressure to keep you going. And it was just a true pleasure. And you know what? On that note, I do recall that sold out intro. Um, <laughs> I did see them going out in the snow. It must have been cold when they did that, right? <laughs> oh, boy. It was, minus, it was minus 10 degrees, I believe. Wow. And as another funny story, while, we're, while they're going down the road in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, uh-huh. which is uh, Sonny Ono's hometown, and I don't know if anybody knew that, but... Uh, Sonny being from Iowa, that's kind of funny, isn't it? We still contact <laughs> yeah. each other today every now and then. But um, just to add insult to injury, knowing that I was going to have to edit all that footage mm. with uh, a gentleman who was a, just gifted as far as machine-to-machine editing goes, we had to edit in a Turner truck the next day with no heater, by the way. I uh, thought it would be prop- appropriate to make sure there was at least one moon seen that night. So I remember uh, pressing my cheeks up against the window of my uh, um, room that overlooked the whole parade so they could see that uh, <laughs> it wasn't so bad inside. <laughs> I'll never forget that one, but oh, Mike Miller, who directed lots of fight, uh, lots of big fights back in the day for ESPN and HBO, people mm-hmm. like that, he uh, was a director for us as well, primarily on Thunder. He helped me put that whole um, packaged together with the parade scenes and the guys that were out there, boy, involved with the camera work, man, they went above and beyond because it was freezing that night. Never forget mm-hmm. it. I bet. Uh, gentlemen, Guy Evans, uh, Neil Pruitt, Guy Evans, the uh, the author of Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. Neil Pruitt, the host of the Secrets of Nitro podcast and the voice of the NWO. I greatly appreciate you guys coming on, and I thank you. Randy, it was You're a welcome. Lot of fun. Thank you, Randy. Yeah, it was a whole lot of fun, Randy. Sorry to interrupt you, Guy. And um, working with Guy is always a pleasure, and anytime I can talk to him, I'll do it. And we uh, talked last night before this podcast and kind of had good times to reminisce, talking about our families and everything. And nice. It's a, it's a lifelong friendship now, so... We're stuck with each other, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, continue to right. be, uh, be safe and healthy, um, guys out there. And I know, Guy, we'll keep in touch. God, definitely want to have you on for Nitro's 25th anniversary, man. Yes, sir. Thanks a lot, Randy. Appreciate it. All right, fellas, take it easy. Thank take you, Take it Randy. easy. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. No problem. Anytime.